Federal contractors are getting some much-needed relief from two acquisition challenges. The Defense Department and General Services Administration released new memos earlier this week dealing with process delays that are impacting fourth-quarter buying. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me now with what vendors need to know about these policy changes. Jason, let's start with the DOD memo. What's going on and what are they trying to fix here? Tom, this is a reaction to the problems that we've seen over the last about five or six months with the transition to the unique entity identifier or UEI on SAM.gov. This is something GSA has been leading over since April. And what DOD did was release a deviation to the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, That allows services and defense agencies to do business with companies who are not fully registered in the government-wide acquisition system. Now, what this means is if the offer or the company can prove that they have at least started the process, they've initiated their registration, but they're not actively registered, basically what DOD said was it's fine to do business with those people under certain circumstances and, you know, make your best judgment. But what this is really referring to is this delays that continue to, to really hurt the UEI transition uh, the, to SAM.gov. And, and Tom, as a reminder, this is the old Dun and Bradstreet number that every company had to get. Now they're getting something new called the UEI. And let's be honest, I've written about this a couple of times now. The transition has not gone well. A lot of delays. Right. The government is trying to save money because I think a Dun and Bradstreet number is free to the entities, but it costs the government to use it. I think the government was paying something like seventeen million over so many years. It was it was a pretty big cost for them over, over the last few years. And and the goal here was to get out of a proprietary number uh, identification way to identify these entities or these businesses and get to a more quote unquote open source one, non proprietary one. Right. And as you pointed out, we are five months since the transition to this UEI, this unique entity identifier. It's still a problem. What's GSA saying now? And what is industry? What are you hearing here? GSA is not saying much yet. I am waiting for some feedback from them, some latest statistics. The latest ones I have are from July when they talked about the challenges of of the numbers of people who've been through the system, about 200,000 as of early July, and uh, the number of, of help desks and the backlog that they're experiencing. What I'm hearing mostly anecdotally through industry and different sources, different consultants and the like, and associations, is that there are still delays. A lot of issues do get taken care of by GSA fairly quickly, but there's still the challenge of, well, it's Tom Temin and Associates and the and is an ampersand, but now you got to write out and and that makes the system confused that, that Tom, is, Tom Temin and Associates is no longer uh, registered in SAM.gov. So there's still these types of problems, the way you identify a specific company that was maybe not identified previously in the exact same way. Again, it's obviously that because the delays are still hampering companies, because the, they're still a, a backlog of people trying to get through the system, it's clear why DOD had to issue this far deviation. And to be clear, Tom, far deviations don't happen all the time, and it's a pretty significant issue. And basically what DOD writes in the memo is the deviation is issued to mitigate delays in SAM registration currently being experienced by entities due to changes in the validation process and the significant increase in entities requesting a unique entity identifier at SAM. Sure. So the delays are still out there. And GSA itself has some new policies. What are they trying to address separate from the UEI issue? The other big issue that's popped up over the last six, seven months is inflation and how that's impacting federal contractors. Specifically for the GSA schedule, there are rules of something called an economic price adjustment. They call it an EPA contract clause. Of course, Tom, when I hear EPA, I think of the Environmental Protection Agency, 
but you got to get your mind around other acronyms that mean the same, that means something different in, in government. So in this case, economic price adjustment contract clause, GSA initially issued a memo back in March. They've issued another memo just uh, earlier this week. And that basically says the approval process to raise your prices because of inflation has now is out now at the contracting officer's level. So that means if I'm a company on the GSA schedule and it used to cost me a dollar per widget and now it's cost me a dollar fifty per widget because of inflation, because of supply chain challenges, I can ask my contracting officer, hey, I need to raise my price 50 cents. They can say, yes, do it or no, don't do it based on evidence that you as the company provides. Previously, what the concern was, the contracting officer needed to go next level up or next two levels up. And that was causing, again, significant delays and really putting companies in a tough situation. Either they sell to the government at a loss, which is never a good thing because we know that profit margins are fairly small, or they don't sell to the government at all, which is also a problem because now the government's not getting what they need. And the company is potentially getting bad past performance. They've sure. rejected a, a task order. And is there a provision in there that for the agency, it must have sufficient appropriated funds? Because that's what's in the DOD sliver of relief on inflation. There's not a provision in the GSA memo because that's not GSA's role to tell you, Agency X, to have money to pay for this. But it's really allowing the vendor to raise their prices more quickly, more easily and really reduce the red tape. I talked to Roger Waldron, the, the president of the Coalition for Government Procurement. They, they do a lot of work with, a lot of their members do a lot of work with GSA. And, and he basically pointed and said, listen, this is definitely a welcome, positive step by GSA. It provides the contracting officers the authority they need to consider and address economic price adjustments. Uh, and, and this was, you know, obviously it was, there were some problems, there were some delays previously, there were things that just were not happening as quickly. All right. And all of this, these new DOD policy on the uh, entities and GSA on the inflation, can any of this really impact at this point fourth quarter spending, which only has, what, a week and a half, a couple weeks to go? Or are we mainly looking at 2023 at this point? I think yes to both of those questions. I, again, going back to what Roger Waldron told me, he was saying that GSA did a smart thing. They've been doing, one, a lot of training on the economic price adjustments. But secondly, and more importantly, they've actually sent out an alert along with this memo to really do some, you know, basically do some frequently asked questions to really get the word out more quickly to contracting officers at that operational level. So I think that's a really good thing to, to message it. But I do think you're also right that the GSA economic price adjustment change will really help both agencies and vendors as they head into early fiscal 2023, because that's when the, the changes will happen. And then this uh, memo stays in place for a solid six months until March of 2023. And I think that's another smart move. As of the, for DOD, this is definitely going to help the companies in the short term, because basically what DOD is saying is, if you're in the process of getting your UEI, we can still award you a contract. And with the end of the fourth quarter buying season right above uh, upon us, that's really going to help them immediately. And then, of course, there's a longer term uh, tail behind it because they're extending that policy through the end of October. So there's still another month into the first quarter of the buying season, uh, into the first quarter of 2023, recognizing that the UEI challenges potentially will continue. All right. So more to come on this, I'm sure. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out both of his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.